This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, Media Watch looks at the blame game played out in the media over the latest COVID cluster, while the entire COVID communication strategy was called into question, and even the concept of our team of five million. Good evening, Minister. Evening, Lisa. Is there still a team of five million? Also, we'll hear how the bosses of our state-owned broadcasters fronted up to their political masters for their annual review at Parliament. There was plenty to ask them about, like the government's proposals to replace both of them within three years with something new. But as it happened, there were more questions like this one. And would you sack someone who dared to have a view that wasn't politically correct? But first, we look at how the media scrambled to cover Friday's tsunami and earthquake emergency. Our guest first is the Far North Mayor, John Carter. Uh, John, good morning. Hi, how are you? Good, thank um, you. I'm just in my car evacuating our village. Um, just hold on a minute, i just got to tell a neighbour, you need to evacuate. Um, yeah, so, yeah, no, we've, we've all got to go. That was Far North Mayor John Carter on a hastily arranged RNZ National News special last Friday, simultaneously carrying out an interview with Catherine Ryan while urging his neighbours to get out of Dodge, or Waipapa Cody Beach Village to be precise. Have, have you heard the tsunami warning? Yeah, so you need to just evacuate, eh? OK, thank you. Rachel, you need to evacuate, there's a tsunami warning. OK, sorry about that. That's fine, John. What's the situation there uh, with where you are located uh, at the moment? Are, there any, are you expecting civil defence uh, alerts to reach people? Just explain no, the, the status. Siren, the siren's already going here. The tsunami siren's already singing its song. And no one wants to hear the song of a tsunami siren in the early morning. But that might just turn out to be one of John Carter's greatest hits on the radio. Now, he wasn't the only person providing memorable sound bites in the chaos and confusion that followed Friday morning's 8.1 magnitude earthquake off the Kermadec Islands. This guy at the beach in dirty dog sunglasses, a rolly in hand and a black singlet with the word wasted on it, told News Hub's live coverage this. Well, I felt the earthquake about 2 o'clock this morning, mate, and I thought someone was shaking my van, so I'm out there running around Starkers in the bush looking for who was shaking my van. It was an earthquake. Yeah, so that was pretty funny. Well, maybe not funny for him, but certainly pretty funny for News Hub viewers in the mid-morning. In Rotorua, local democracy reporting service journalist Felix Damarai found one woman in Ohope who was pretty pleased with the early morning earthquake because it had shaken a bunch of peaches from her tree. She, though, was not shaken. I'll be bottling those now, she told the reporter. And in the great New Zealand tradition of background bombing the live TV cross, one man tried to moon TVNZ's cameras mid-morning, only to have his bare cheeks obscured by the reporter. The coverage on Friday had the chaotic seat-of-your-pants feel, as you'd expect for scrambling live coverage, especially on television, and that did lead to a few slip-ups, though some were more serious than others. One News, for example, issued a tweet saying Auckland included in tsunami evacuation warning after magnitude 8.1 earthquake. Now that was technically accurate, but should also have included the information that the warning only applied to coastal areas. Giving one and a half million people the impression that they might all have to evacuate their homes was risky at the best of times, even more so during a lockdown. But other slip-ups were just unfortunate. For example, Stuff's Life and Style section issued an ill-timed and likely pre-scheduled tweet urging readers to go foraging with its guide to edible New Zealand seaweeds.
And many stuff readers responded that during a tsunami is probably among the worst times to forage for seaweed. However, those gaffes were the exception rather than the rule. As with previous tsunami alerts, the media delivered important factual warnings at the right time. The new Civil Defence Minister Kerry Allen was also praised for clear, concise communication amid the incomplete information on Friday morning. This was her opening message at her first briefing. When it is long or strong, get gone. This morning, whether that was at 2.30 or whether that was later on throughout the course of the morning, we saw New Zealanders literally adhere to that advice. They felt the long or strong earthquakes and they knew to grab their bag and head into the highlands. But the civil defence communications also had their own hiccups. Text alerts to the east coast of the North Island struggled to handle Macrons in place names. One text ordered residents of question mark P question mark Tiki to evacuate, it meant Opotiki. Now that's just details obviously and more substantial comm slip-ups will get picked over in full in a debriefing with the next tsunami warning in mind. And with that in mind, civil defence wasn't the only part of government under the microscope for its communications this past week. Hello, Aotearoa. I'm Dr Ashley Bloomfield. And this is a COVID-19 announcement. That was one of a series of video ads pumped out late last year to persuade us all not to slack off COVID-19 precautions and bring summer to a halt. It's time to make summer unstoppable. Let's unite against COVID-19. Announcement. Not all the ads in that campaign had as many beats per minute or Bloomfields per minute and the heavy electronic dance vibe there wouldn't be everybody's cup of tea. But the ad industry liked the campaign and last week it was nominated in this year's Primo Annual Awards for New Zealand Advertising in the category of Best Brand Experience and Activation. The yellow and white striped Unite to Fight COVID ads, telling us to wash hands and stay home, stay safe and so on, were also nominated in the Best Billboard category. Another good result for the government and the creators they commissioned. Mind you, there was a big bill for it. Back in July last year, RNZ's Ben Strang revealed it was $16 million at that point. The vast majority of that was destined for two major communications firms who we understand were working on the messaging we all saw throughout the alert levels. The first was Cleminger BBDO. They've worked on some of New Zealand's most successful advertising campaigns in the past. For instance, who can forget the ghost chips commercial that we saw of drunk driving? My understanding is that they helped come up with some of the simple but effective messaging like stay home, save lives, the big yellow alerts we saw online and on the telly, those sorts of things. They had a $3 million contract. And according to Mike Hosking on News Talk ZB, that wasn't money well spent. But do you need to pay $16 million for it? No, which is what makes this so egregious. But while Mike Hosking is no design guru, Alice Rawsthorne, on the other hand, is. And last June, the UK-based specialist said that New Zealand's information campaign was the most thoughtfully, clearly and sensitively designed in the world. Not only is the quality of the information exceptionally high, the manner in which it is organised and presented is unusually clear, precise, pragmatic and accessible. 
But just days after that Ad Awards nomination last week, the effectiveness of the entire government COVID communications campaign was being called into question and even condemned in some quarters as wholly inadequate, as we'll hear. So what changed? Well, the latest lockdown prompted by infectious individuals in Auckland who didn't isolate, instead going to work, for a walk and to the gym. Now those people became the focus of intense media coverage and commentary this past week, not to mention condemnation on social media, kicking off a huge blame game in the media. Yet this was far from the first time that bad breaches have been recorded and reported, yet the media seized on these ones to ask bigger questions this past week. Good evening, Minister. Evening, Lisa. Is there still a team of five million? Oh, yes, I think there is. You know, I mean, obviously, we've got a situation here where, where people are feeling pretty frustrated about where we're at, and especially when they hear that some of their some of their fellow members of that team might not have followed all the rules. But we just have to have a little bit of perspective here. We've done incredibly well. The Deputy Prime Minister, Grant Robertson, on Checkpoint last Monday, being quizzed by Lisa Owen. And the following morning, TVNZ's Daily News email told subscribers this. Good morning. Here's what you need to know this Tuesday. Cracks have emerged within New Zealand's team of five million over the current COVID cluster. On Magic Talk Radio, Peter, just asking questions, Williams said there was no team of five million at all and he was sick of hearing about it. And we've been here before. Are we still a team of five million? Stuff asked back in August last year, like this. New Zealand's second lockdown is exposing cracks in the country's collective kindness, with fewer Kiwis keen to prioritise public health over the economy, research shows. Well, that research was an analysis of public conversations on social media, which found that four out of five of them were highly emotional and negative about that lockdown, though a lot of conversations on social media can be described like that, even in better times. That same week, the Herald concluded the sense of community during the first lockdown appeared to have somewhat dissolved, according to a poll that the Herald itself had commissioned. But it later conceded the poll didn't show that at all. The Herald accepts that there was strong support for the lockdown and its extension both in Auckland and the rest of the country. And fast forward to this week, there were more overwrought conclusions being drawn by the media from a darkening public mood over those who had deemed to have led us all into lockdown by failing to follow the rules. For instance, is the Ardern government's kindness mantra beginning to fray, asked the spin-off on Tuesday. Noting that the Prime Minister had taken a harder public line on rule breakers, its political editor Justin Giovanetti said her kindness banner appears increasingly threadbare, while Stuff's political editor Luke Malpass pulled at the same threads the same day in a piece that included this claim. This week will be the biggest political test of this new Labour government and the greatest test of the government's response to COVID-19 since the original lockdown. A bold call there. That was before we knew for sure whether the current cluster would expand as test results came in. The Americold cluster last year was far bigger, the lockdown of Auckland was longer, and that was long before a vaccine was on the horizon, let alone onshore. Luke Malpass also wrote on Monday that the Prime Minister wanted us to know it's not her government's fault, and Newsroom's political editor Joe Moyer agreed... In an impressive display of washing one's hands of responsibility, the government has blamed these rule-breakers for the shift to Level 3. But while Jacinda Ardern spoke of her frustration, other people with a media platform wanted prosecution, among them Duncan Garner on the AM show. Jacinda Ardern was pathetically weak, almost excusing the behaviour on Saturday night. I don't want to create an environment where an individual who has made mistakes here gets so pilloried that no one wants to be tested. 
Oh, it's nothing to do with testing. It's a wrong message. This will cost business up to a billion dollars. Uh, Dern should have laid down the law. Instead, we got some drivel worried they were young. It is, of course, the police force, not the Prime Minister, who has the power to prosecute rule breakers working under direction from health authorities who put in place public health orders. And Duncan Garnett then went on to join the pile-on for Case M, the 21-year-old who worked out instead of staying in after his COVID test. Stick to your bubble, except this 21-year-old did not. Stick it, he said, I'm bigger than COVID. Outrageous. We need to charge anyone who thumbs their nose and basically gave the one-fingered salute to the entire country. That's what he did. It's economic and social sabotage, in my view. It's treason. Seriously. A seriously long list of crimes there, though treason probably wouldn't stand up in court. And thumbing your nose while giving a one-fingered salute to the country at the same time, also a bit of a mixed message. Now, when the Prime Minister upped her irritation later that day and said that rule breakers should be called out by their family and acquaintances, Newsroom's Joe Moyer called it a complete change of tune from the top and just one of many mixed messages in recent days. This week is the opportunity to get the train back on the tracks, but giving neighbours a green light to call each other out isn't the answer. Meanwhile, on News Talk ZB, Talkback host Andrew Dickens asked his audience this. I don't care what language you speak as a first language. If you don't realise that when you go and have a COVID test, you're not allowed to go anywhere else. You go straight home until you get a negative. If you don't get that, uh, well, you know, you deserve to be pinged in my, my uh, book. And plenty of his ZB callers want to do worse than ping the young gin goer. But Andrew Dickens went on to point out that if following the rules and managing the risk is really the issue, the finger of blame could be pointed at other Aucklanders too then obviously we have to fine everybody who left town at 2 o'clock in the morning to go to the batch, don't we? And is that you? Give me a call. Do you feel like you've been a bad person? Unsurprisingly, perhaps the lines did not then run hot with Aucklanders calling up to own up to making a break for the batch. And Andrew Dickens was backed up in this by a freshly minted nominee for New Zealander of the Year, as RNZ's Matthew Tunison reported on Tuesday. On Sunday... Microbiologist Susie Wiles tweeted her disappointment at Aucklanders fleeing the city, describing it as a shitty thing to do. But they were not feeling the heat as much as people at the centre of the story, including Case L, the young woman who went to work at KFC last week, as NewsHub's investigations editor Michael Mora found on Tuesday. It's like not fair on our end that we're getting all this backlash for something that we haven't actually done. And Michael Mora reported that that young woman had been given contradictory advice. The critical point is this. Case L, the KFC worker, says not only did she not receive any information from anyone about the need to self-isolate, her sister, Case I, received information which is the complete opposite of what officials have claimed. And after that, there were more claims and counterclaims from officials and relatives and union representatives about the message that was given. On the same day, the Prime Minister and COVID Response Minister Chris Hipkins reminded employers of their responsibilities. TVNZ's Kristen Hall and Katie Bradford both unearthed employers not paying employees properly who had obediently isolated as they were told. But what seemed to be beyond dispute was the apparently world-class COVID communications hadn't been clear enough and had confused people with terms like casual and casual plus contacts. And for some, it seems the message wasn't getting through at all. A Papa Toy Toy GP told Stuff that COVID just isn't the biggest thing that's happening in some people's lives where she lived. They may be suffering from mental health issues, struggling to make ends meet, or living in a two-room apartment with ten people, she said. Suddenly, self-isolating at home isn't so simple. 
and some people tried to make the case via the media that the problem here was that, no matter what the message said, fear of losing income and employment would be greater than the fear of COVID for people who are close to the breadline. Newsroom's Mark Dalder put it this way. You're the sole income earner for your family. You're told to stay home after you went to Kmart at the wrong time. Your job says you won't be paid if you do. The government only offers $588 a week, below the minimum wage and pre-tax. What do you do? The same day, Stuff's Joel Maxwell asked a handful of non-Pakeha people, two politicians and two regular young folks, if they thought the official COVID message was clear enough. The headline, Young People to Government, Your Message is Too Old, Too Stale and Way Too Long, was a bit of a stretch on that sample size, and it didn't go down well with ZB's Kerry McIver on Wednesday. He said the government needed to refocus its messaging, taking in youth culture and devices to make it better for young people. Rio said making things tougher was that Māori did not like being told what to do by the government. That's just in our nature. Did not like being told what to do by the government. It is just in our nature. Well, Fitiko Rio, I can tell you this old white lady doesn't like being told what to do by the government either. I don't think that is particular to Māori. Nobody likes being told what to do just for the sake of it. Well, the government isn't telling people what to do for the sake of it over COVID, of course, but for the sake of public health. And many people, including old white ladies like Kerry McIver, not only want but expect the government to do just that on their behalf. Now, in terms of getting the message across, many in the media made the point that old white ladies, as Kerry McIver herself put it, weren't really the problem. On Morning Report on Tuesday, Corin Dan asked Dr Bloomfield if his ministry had been a little too middle-class and middle-aged to consider putting COVID messages out on platforms like TikTok. And on Wednesday, he asked the Minister for Social Development and Employment, Carmel Cipollone, if they urgently now need to change the communications game to reach younger people. Look, I, I'm speaking to Penny Henari yesterday, and I know that he's been talking to a number of um, people who would be perceived as influencers amongst that generation, and he's certainly lining some people up uh, to be able to actually put those messages out. But if the Associate Minister of Health is rounding up influencers at this point, well, isn't it all a bit late for that? Adman Vaughan Davis has worked on public information and social good campaigns in the past. He's the creator of the Orange Guy, which electoral agencies roll out at every election to get the message across about enrolling and voting. He's also a broadcaster and social media expert. So does he think that this past week has showed that the previously much-praised COVID communications campaign wasn't all it was cracked up to be in the end? I think you've picked up on a really important thing, and that's the impression that people are getting from the media. Uh, what I haven't seen is any evidence that the communication is not working. I mean, there's a difference between failure in compliance and failure in communication. I mean, the, there's always going to be people who, even though they have received and understood the messages, won't necessarily follow them. You know, it's hard to argue that the, the Tamaki's uh, fleeing Auckland or you know, uh, high school students refusing testing didn't know what's expected. They just they just chose not to do it. So there's, there's a perhaps a knowledge gap there. And uh, and you know, if I were um, part of this this project with government, one one thing we'd be doing would be uh, you know follow up research to to confirm whether or not people are understanding what they're expected to do. And that may well be happening. 
Yeah, I saw a, a website of yours, a, a picture on it, um, where you're quite puffed up that there was a bunch of young people going to the Sevens who'd all chosen as their costume uh, orange guy. And you're saying, look, look, this cuts through with young people. Does your communications effort? Um, but, you know, looking at that, then I had to think about it. thought, well, actually, young people going to the Sevens all dressed up, that's almost a thing that's come and gone. But does that show you, you know, within two years, you have to be ready to readdress it because that platform or that trend might be gone? Yeah, you do. Need, you do need to be in lots of places, and, and the, you know the places, even the places that um, the COVID comms were a year ago. Um, you know, the media lang- uh, landscape has changed. You know, people are putting their spending their time in slightly different places to where they were spending them. Uh, you know, a year ago. But I think a, a key. You know, going back to the the corridor in media over the last week or so, there's been a lot of people giving their opinions on what they thought of the comms. What people think of comms like this is far less important than whether they work. You know, we don't ask people if, if the fire alarm sounded nice or if they would rather it had played a tune. You know, we just check that everyone's evacuated the building. And that is the measure of these things. We're not here to, you know, to entertain and be loved. We're here to do a job. But if you've got, say, for example, Corin Dan on Morning Report asking Dr. Bloomfield, um, you know, shouldn't you have put more stuff on TikTok, for instance, possibly uh, you've got your, your ministry and the officials there um, might be a bit too sort of middle class and middle aged to actually know uh, or be able to instruct people in charge of comms where to put uh, information. I mean, is that a problem that? Yeah, two issues there. Firstly, um, you know, government is, is not uh, new to communicating with the entire population. And, and health, actually, is a, an area where a lot of that goes on. And if you uh, think about a behaviour change campaigns, and, and you know, that's what COVID is, right? It's a behaviour change campaign. Uh, drunk driving and done some really effective work. So it's not like this is completely new to them. Mm. Yeah, Matthew Hooten put it a bit more colourfully in Herald uh, on Friday, saying you have uh, multiple-degreed upper-income monocultural Wellington bureaucrats uh, that don't get what might be a, a, a glorious ethnic-linguistic educational uh, diversity of South Auckland. Is that yeah, I, part think, of... I think that's unfair, and I think if we're looking at the comms department of any large government organisation now, you, you're not going to see... Uh, you know, a room full of white middle class people. You're going to see, you know, not not complete diversity that reflects the community, but uh, you know, this is this is their business, and and they're not stupid, and they you know they they staff their departments with people who understand how to do this stuff. Mm. And just finally, Vaughan, one thing we heard people say it was regrettable and un- unfortunate that the people at the centre of these clusters suffered a kind of online pile on, uh, but but in the end. Isn't that in itself quite an effective tool? I mean, if, if people are worried that people were getting complacent or, or not getting messages, young, younger folks particularly engaging on social media, not, not mainstream or news media, and, I mean, if they're all aware via social media that people who ended up at the heart of this cluster for not following the rules were getting um, a pile on, isn't it actually pretty effective that they find out about that and don't want to be in that position themselves? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in the retail or, or financial space, you know, which is you know, not completely disconnected from behaviour change, research tells us consistently that people value the opinions of their friends far higher than the opinions of experts, which in turn they value far higher than the opinions of brands themselves. And the second thing is to enable that. You know, we give people the tools, we give people the language, we give people the catchphrases 
they need to do that. And, you know, going back to the drink driving uh, stuff we were talking about, crash here or uh, I'm internalising a complicated situation or Monique thinks you're dumb. You know, those catchphrases have done well, become part of language, become part of our discourse, and we end up being the advertising. And, and when we are the advertising, when we are the message, it's going to be far more potent, far more effective than anything we see on TV, YouTube or TikTok. I guarantee there'll be ongoing research about whether or not the comms work. And, and you're quite right. It's whether or not people are understanding and taking the actions. And you don't get that by talkback. That was broadcaster and social media expert Vaughan Davis, also the owner of the ad agency The Goat Farm. And he was talking to me there about criticism of the national COVID communications campaign and the week that it was shortlisted for major national ad awards. The bosses of our state-owned broadcasters, TVNZ and RNZ, fronted up for their annual review in Parliament this week before the Social Services and Community Select Committee. But this time, they couldn't do it in person. Thanks to COVID restrictions, they beamed in instead from their own offices via Zoom, with video and audio links of varying quality, making it a bit of a flat encounter, and quite a contrast to last year when the COVID crisis was yet to become acute here and the execs were eyeball to eyeball in the same room with the MP on the committee. Now at that time the MPs were pretty fired up and armed with some searching questions and the timing was tricky for both of the broadcasters. The RNZ concert crisis was still a live and unresolved controversy and RNZ's bosses had to defend their plan to dump concert from FM to free it up for a bold new service to attract a new and younger audience. RNZ's Chief Executive Paul Thompson faced questions like this from MP Deborah Russell about whether RNZ had actually asked for another FM frequency or not from the Ministry for Culture and Heritage. Did you explicitly ask for a frequency for the youth radio? We, what I did is I talked I've about... I've heard that. I've yeah. asked a very direct question. Did you explicitly ask for a frequency? No, but okay, what I did thank you. I, That's what I needed to know. And how and why RNZ got the message from the ministry that a spare FM radio frequency would be too hard to get was unclear, even after the ministry's own annual review. Now, the final report from the committee last year made it clear that the new youth service and the future of RNZ concert were still to be settled in the year ahead. And they also said they feared that the issue might damage trust in RNZ in the future. And in addition to all that, at the time of the annual review in Parliament last year, the Minister of Broadcasting had just confirmed that both RNZ and TVNZ were themselves under review because the government proposed to replace both of them with a single new public media entity. A business case would have to be done to set out the details and the committee's report from last year also identified that as the pressing issue for the rest of 2020 into 2021. Well, 12 months later, the committee has many new faces, including some brand new MPs, and last Wednesday they asked surprisingly little about those big issues. In fact, it was a much more recent policy announcement from the Broadcasting Minister that was on the minds of the opposition MPs on the committee. $55 million more for at-risk public interest journalism available across all news media over the next three years. Nationals Broadcasting Spokesperson Melissa Lee asked RNZ's Chair and Chief Executive if this money would make them go soft on the government. Would RNZ be prepared to challenge, critique and even call for the resignation of the government or ministers at the risk of losing access to the Public Interest Journalism Fund? 
RNZ's Chair Jim Mather said that RNZ's not usually in the business of calling for the government to resign, so this was all a bit hypothetical, while Chief Editor Paul Thompson said new funding would not influence the handling of any political stories. He insisted that would breach RNZ's editorial principles and its responsibilities and statutory obligations. But Melissa Lee then put a similar scenario to TVNZ's Chief Executive Kevin Kenrick later on on Wednesday in three parts. And eventually, Kevin Kenrick answered like this. So the question was, if a minister or the prime minister threatened to actually pull your public interest journalism funding, would you run the story, is the question. 100%. The amount of funding we get is a round of drinks. (laughs) Thanks for that question. Well, TVNZ is a commercially funded operation, but it gets tens of millions in public funding each year via New Zealand On Air for its local programmes. So that would be a pretty big round of drinks. By contrast, the dividends the company pays the Crown each year would pay for no drinks at all. For the past two years, TVNZ hasn't been required to make the contributions that were previously expected of it every year, but no one on the committee asked about that. RNZ's Paul Thompson was then asked this question by one of the most senior MPs on the committee, Nationals Louise Upston. Just on that question in terms of balance, how will you ensure the views that might not be popular um, or politically correct are still provided to the public who are entitled to a view? Um, And would you sack someone who dared to have a view that wasn't politically correct? Paul Thompson replied that political views of RNZ staff shouldn't come into it, RNZ's people are required to be impartial and independent, and he said there were mechanisms in place to ensure that coverage is balanced, fair and impartial. Louise Upston replied, I think some would challenge that. And one of those might be her colleague, MP for Tamaki, Simon O'Connor. Two weeks earlier, he said this to the Chief Executive of the Ministry for Culture and Heritage, Bernadette Kavanagh, during the Ministry's annual review in Parliament. Uh, there, there's the old adage, Bernadette, don't bite the hand that feeds you. Um, so, yeah, laying my cards on the table, I'm uncomfortable that the Crown is funding a fourth estate and wanting some surety, as I'm sure those in the public, that the arm's length is going to be continued. What's going to allow the media to actively and rightly critique government and opposition, uh, despite the fact that they're getting millions and millions of dollars from the taxpayer? The suspicion that more cash for journalism from the government via New Zealand On Air might compromise the media in holding it to account runs deep in the opposition right now, it seems. At times, the questions from Nationals Melissa Lee were extremely specific during last Wednesday's annual review. For example, this one for TVNZ's Kevin Kenrick. What was the reason for $36,542.99 being spent on a line producer for Tikarere in international travel in comparison to only $16,144.91 for a news reporter. But the annual review cast little light on what the future might hold on those big issues for RNZ and TVNZ, the new public media entity and RNZ's music plans. And that's in spite of the fact that the minister himself appeared before them after TVNZ's session on Wednesday. Now this past year has of course seen COVID sideline big issues the committee highlighted last year and Chris Farfoy revealed that the consultants and public servants working on the business case for a new public media entity were only about two-fifths of their way through the work at the moment. So other than that, it's a case of wait and see, something TVNZ's Kevin Kenrick was effectively telling the committee on Wednesday when they did ask how he was planning for it.
my understanding is that the intention is to have a new public media entity that has dual funding, both commercial and public funding. Um, you know, I guess the examples of that internationally would be something like RTE in Ireland. And, and I think if that was the approach, then there's the opportunity to deliver to both the viewer and to New Zealand businesses from an advertising point of view. But, but as I said before, I mean, that definition and that detail is yet to be worked through through the business case. Hayden Donnell took a look at what unfolded and what didn't in those annual reviews last Wednesday at Parliament on Midweek Media Watch with Karen Hay on The Lately Show. That's on our podcast feed if you missed it, or you can get it on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website. And there you can also read about how the Herald's publisher NZME pulled a piece by a former Cabinet Minister, Dr Michael Bassett, which it now says was unacceptable, even though one of its local papers had already printed it and it had already appeared on the author's own blog. NZME said this week there'll be no more from Dr Bassett on any of its platforms and it's now urgently reviewing its processes for publishing opinions. So read all about that on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website. Well, that's all we have for you from the Media Watch team this week. We'll be back again with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.